0: We'll turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 2, Mark 2. Last week we studied most of Mark 2, but we're going to finish it this morning and then also move on to chapter 3. Last week we saw Jesus claiming that he can forgive sins, and that was backed up by his ability to heal the paralyzed man. We saw Jesus calling an unlikely disciple, Levi, or Matthew, the tax collector, and we saw Jesus countering a challenge about fasting. This morning, we're going to look at Mark 2:23, uh, it says 3:12, but I'm actually cutting that back to 3:6. So we're just going to be looking at two accounts here, both of them that have to do with the Sabbath. So Jesus claims authority over the Sabbath. That's the end of Mark chapter 2. And then the beginning, the first six verses of chapter three, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. We'll spend um, the better part of our time on that first story this morning. But in both of these first two stories here, we need to go back to the Old Testament to understand what Jesus is doing and what Mark is communicating to us. And that's part of the challenge for us today. We're not really familiar with the Old Testament. We don't know it as well as those who were present with Jesus or those who were later reading Mark's account. So we have some work to do in order to understand the background behind these stories. So we'll do that this morning. And I think we'll begin to see in these stories just want, what Jesus wants us to see about who he is. So let's go ahead and start there at the end of chapter two, verses 23 to 28. Just follow along as I read. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So let me just give you a few comments on um, those verses before we dig into a couple of big issues that we find in this story. So first of all, Jesus says, "Well, the the disciples, excuse me, the the um, the disciples are doing something that is raising the ire of the Pharisees." What is it that they're doing? Well, they're plucking these heads of grain as they're traveling through. Is that a lawful action or not? Well, when we go back to the Old Testament, you go to Deuteronomy chapter 23, you find if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. What's the point of that? Well, don't think just like your next door neighbor. This is anybody whose fields you're traveling past in your community or in your country. And the purpose here is just, this is a provision that is made to provide for travelers. You know, they're not traveling with coolers and there's probably not restaurants everywhere available. And so this is one of the provisions that God makes for people is you're allowed to go ahead and just pluck enough grain to sustain you as you travel. That's not giving you permission to put in a sickle and start reaping and harvesting what the other person has worked to grow. So there's the difference there, okay? So it's just taking care of travelers. But the Pharisee's problem is that Jesus and his disciples are doing work, they're farming, they're reaping or harvesting on the Sabbath. And you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Maybe you've had the experience of playing a game and somebody, maybe you, does something that the other players think is against the rules. And so you have to iron out what the rules really mean. Well, the Pharisees thought they had ironed out all of God's rules, all of God's laws. And the way that they did that was they took whatever God's laws said and they built up fences around that and made those their own rules so that they would never get close to breaking God's rules. But that actually had some unintended consequences First of all, they began to treat their own rules as being on the same level as God's laws. So when Jesus and his disciples here break one of their rules, they freak out as if they had actually broken God's law, which they hadn't done. And second, you'll see this as we go through Mark, their insistence on their rules actually, at times, leads them to violate God's laws because it violates the intentions of what God was getting at when he gave some of these laws. Well, here in our story, they thought they could keep the Sabbath by doing things like limiting the number of steps that you travel on the Sabbath and saying that, well, since you're supposed to not work on the Sabbath, you can't drag a chair across your dirt floor because the legs of the chair would make little furrows in the dirt floor. And that would be like plowing and that's work so you don't do that, and you don't harvest, so you can't pick the grain, and a whole host of other rules that they had added. But then just take a step back from it and ask yourself the question, was God's intention in his laws that people who were traveling had to starve on the Sabbath? Of course not. That's not what God's laws are getting after at all. The Sabbath was made to serve man, not to be a burden to him. Jesus then appeals to this story about David and David eating the bread from the tabernacle. We're going to dig into that story because that's actually going to be really helpful in understanding what's going on in this story, but more on that in a minute. Just notice at the end of the account here, Jesus says that the Sabbath is supposed to be a blessing to man. And he asserts his own authority as Lord over the Sabbath. He uses the term, notice we saw this term already once, son of man. Remember, it comes from Daniel 7. This is a term of authority. This is the the son of man taking his throne. And Jesus says, I have authority over the Sabbath. All right. So one of the things we have to deal with here is that there's a background issue that throws a lot of people when they start digging in and studying this. And... The question basically comes down to who made an error, Jesus or Mark, in retelling this story? Because when you go into the Old Testament, the Old Testament is abundantly clear that the priest, when David went into the tabernacle and took the bread, was not Abiathar. It was Ahimelech. So why, in this account, does it say Abiathar? Who made the mistake? Was Jesus mistaken? Or was Mark mistaken? You probably know what my answer is going to be. Neither of them. Scripture doesn't make mistakes. This is on purpose, but we need to understand why. So what I want you to do is turn to 1 Samuel 21. Turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 21. While you're turning there, let me just kind of explain a little bit of this. The resolution of this question is that the event actually did happen under Ahimelech, when Ahimelech was high priest. And that's in the general time period of Abiathar. But Jesus intentionally wants to associate what he's saying with Abiathar rather than with Ahimelech. And we'll see why. But the point is, there's no error here. This is intentional. Now, let me explain how Jesus can do this And get away with it and it not be an error okay the word that is used here in the days of or in the time of abiathar is a very general broad word it can mean when so when abiathar was priest or it could mean in the days of or in the time period of for example look at how it's used in luke chapter three okay you don't need to turn there just stay where you are in the Old Testament, but I just want to show you some other verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Okay, so at that point, we know this is a very specific time. We've got all these people and their, their territories named. We know when this is happening. But look at the next verse. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, Annas and Caiaphas did not serve together as high priest. They were in succession. Annas is Caiaphas's father-in-law. Okay, well, during that time, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. But here, the time period is referred to generally as during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Specifically, though, during Jesus' trial, we find out that it was Caiaphas who was priest, John 18, 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. But, even knowing that, Luke can refer to Annas as the high priest during the exact same time period. Acts chapter 4, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And I think this is the key here. You've got to remember, in the ancient Near East, their historical processes, the way they write history, is different than ours. So what's acceptable to them is different than what's acceptable to us in how they recount history, okay? But because the title of high priest was in the family, there's flexibility in referring to the family members as high priest. In other words, you could just say it's during the time when the family of Annas and Caiaphas held the high priesthood. That's kind of how you could summarize that. Well, in the same way, the high priesthood in the David story shifts from Ahimelech to to Abiathar, and Abiathar is Ahimelech's son, okay, so the same family. In fact, it's actually only a matter of days after this David event that Ahimelech dies, and this event is the cause of his death. You could say this is what actually brings Abiathar into the priesthood, okay, but Jesus can refer to something that happens when Ahimelech is high priest as having happened when Abiathar is high priest because it's during the time when Abiathar's family held the high priesthood. However, having to go through that whole explanation should make us at least pause and sit up and go, what's going on? Why is Jesus saying it this way? Why does Jesus want to associate his comments with Abiathar's priesthood rather than Ahimelech. And this story works on a couple of levels. In part, Jesus wants to associate what's happening to him with the situation in Ahimelech's day, the story about David and the bread. But at the same time, there's a point he wants to make about Abiathar. In other words, this is on purpose, that Jesus is doing this. Okay, so let's get into the story and dig in to see why Jesus is doing this this way. All right, so in 1 Samuel 21, the background here is that at this point in time, David has been anointed to be the next king, but Saul is still on the throne, and Saul is feeling threatened by David, and so David is on the run. Okay, he's on the run through the countryside. He's got a band of followers with him, and he comes at this point to the tabernacle, which at this point is in Nob. So let's take a look at 1 Samuel 21, the first seven verses. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And we'll stop the story there for now. So this story happens on the day when the bread is switched out. The old bread is taken away and the new bread is put in. If you were to go back to Leviticus 24, you would find that that happens on the Sabbath. So while the story doesn't actually say that it happens on the Sabbath, we know from what's happening in the story that it is on the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus, on the Sabbath, when he's being confronted, can use this particular story to refer to. Even with his concern in this story to do things lawfully, okay, did you notice that Ahimelech, He's like, I can give you the bread, but are the young men, have they been kept pure? And David assures him that they have. And so Ahimelech has this concern to do things lawfully. So you know that what he's going to do, he's doing in accordance with the law. So even with his concern to do things lawfully, Ahimelech is willing to give the bread to David and his men because there's no other bread available. The Sabbath is a day of rest and relief. And Ahimelech is honoring the Sabbath by giving David and his men relief by giving them the bread. Now, normally what happens with the bread when it's removed, it's for the priests to use. So you could say Ahimelech knows, okay, now that the bread has been removed and the new bread has put in, this bread is now mine. It's our family's bread to do with what we want. And I'm treating David as a guest and giving him the bread. I mean, you could, you could walk through the argument that way. But Jesus says, Mark 2, Don't go back there yet. Stay in in 1 Samuel. Jesus says it's not lawful for any but the priests to eat it. Now, does Jesus really believe that? I don't think so. I think he's being almost sarcastic. He's using the Pharisees' judgment of things to describe it. And the reason I say that is, when you go over to the parallel passage in Matthew, here's what you read. Jesus says, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words, the priests are working on the Sabbath. Now, does Jesus really think that the priests are profaning the Sabbath? No, of course not. He's just saying the Sabbath rules have to be taken in context, okay? That's what he's getting at. Now, Ahimelech is honoring the Sabbath by giving David and his men relief by giving them the bread. It's not a violation of the Sabbath, but it's a proper exercise keeping the intent of the Sabbath law. And I want to pause here. I want you to see the parallels because why does Jesus center in on this story? Think about this. David in this story is anointed, but he's not yet king. Jesus in Mark 3 is anointed but he's not yet king. David is traveling all over the countryside. Mark tells us that Jesus has been traveling all over the countryside. David has a band of followers with him who, once he takes the throne, will form the foundation of his kingdom. Jesus has a band of followers with him who, once he takes the throne, will form the foundation of his kingdom. And despite being anointed by God, David is facing opposition from the current authorities in power. Saul, well, Jesus too, even though he's been anointed to be the next king, the Messiah, he's facing opposition from the current power structure. In Israel. So there's all these parallels here between David's situation at that point in time and Jesus' situation at the current point in time. So in referring to this story, now think about what is Jesus doing as far as the religious leaders go? He's placing them in the position of being the ones who are standing in opposition to what God is doing in bringing a new kingdom. Now you're in 1 Samuel 21, go to the next chapter, chapter 22. Okay, 1 Samuel 22. I want you to see how the story continues to unfold. So at this point in the story, David's being chased by Saul. And in this scene, we now switch to Saul. And Saul is complaining that none of his people will tell him where David is. It's like, why can't I get any good information? And so then in verse 9... Doeg speaks up, then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, well, I saw the son of Jesse, David, uh, coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So Doeg the Edomite, remember we saw him observing what was happening with David and the bread, he now reports what happened at the tabernacle. And so then King Saul goes on to summon Ahimelech and his entire family to come to him because he wants to confront Ahimelech and his family for helping David. So look at verse 16. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So uh, um, let me read one more verse. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. So Saul orders the whole family killed, and nobody but Doeg will do it. And so Doeg kills 85 members of the family who are currently serving in the tabernacle, as well as women and children. Now, what does that mean for that family as far as the priesthood goes? Well, verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. So Abiathar escapes, he tells David, and David offers him safety if he will stay with him. So Abiathar is part of the priestly family. He's the son of Ahimelech, which means he's probably present when Ahimelech gives David the bread. And now he alone escapes. Okay, now turn over to 1 Kings chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me just summarize what happens over the course of several years here. Okay, Saul dies, David becomes king, he has a long reign, and Abiathar serves faithfully as priest during during David's reign. Okay, so that's what's going on. But... When David is approaching the end of his life, which is happening in the beginning of 1 Kings, David chooses Solomon to be the next king. Okay, Solomon is the son of David. However, Adonijah, another one of David's sons, tries to claim the throne first. And Abiathar sides with Adonijah. So once David dies and Solomon puts down the rebellion, here's what we read in 1 Kings 2. Start with me in verse 26. Okay, 1 Kings 2, verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king, Solomon, said, Go to Anathoth to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So Solomon spares Abiathar from death, but Abiathar's term of service ends in disgrace. In dishonor, he is deposed from being high priest. Now, Abiathar is the only person in the entire Old Testament to be deposed from being priest. And at that same time, it's the fulfillment of the prophecy regarding Eli and his sons. If you remember that story for their failures, that Eli's line would come to an end. Right, so Eli has the the priestly family. And the prophecy is your line is going to end. Well, his line ends with Abiathar. Okay, that's the background of the story. Now, what is Jesus' point back in Mark chapter two? Why does Jesus refer to this story? Well, Jesus is laying the groundwork for his followers to understand that he, Jesus, is the ultimate true son of David. In the story that we read, Solomon is the anointed son of David. But now Jesus has been anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he's also the true son of David. Let me give you, just briefly, you don't have to turn to these, but four really strong clues from the book of Mark that Mark wants us to see Jesus as the son of David. Okay, First of all, remember at Jesus' baptism? The father speaks the words, you're my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. That's language that comes from Psalm 2, you are my son. That's speaking of the Messiah who will be the great king, a descendant or son of David. That's one. Second clue, in Mark chapter 10, when we get there, you will see Jesus heal Bartimaeus, the blind man. Bartimaeus calls Jesus the son of David, meaning he believes Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus shushes him because that title is going to get him in trouble. And Jesus is managing just the right time to reveal that. The next chapter, Mark 11, is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the crowds are crying, "'Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. "'Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David.'" So they're recognizing that Jesus is the king, who's going to bring the kingdom of David. He's the true son of David. And then in Mark chapter 12, um, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, which indicates that David himself spoke about one who would be David's Lord, greater than David, to whom the Lord Yahweh would speak. So this is the Messiah, David's greater son. David recognizes he's going to have a descendant who's greater than him, this son of David. Okay, so now listen, let me tie it together. Jesus is the son of David and the relationship of Solomon, the son of David to Abiathar the priest is what Jesus is getting at here in Mark 2. He's referring to his relationship as the son of David to the current priestly religious regime in Jerusalem. So just as Solomon, the son of David was opposed by Abiathar, and that resulted in judgment on Abiathar, he's deposed, he loses the priesthood, so too Jesus, the son of David, is now being opposed by the Jewish high priests and the religious establishment, and they too will face judgment. They will be deposed for their opposition to Jesus, the son of David. Now, the current priestly regime We saw when Jesus dies, is Caiaphas. Josephus tells us that just a few years later, AD 36 or 37, Caiaphas is deposed. He's kicked out of being high priest. But more than that, what Jesus is getting at is that the judgment is going to fall on the temple and the whole religious and priestly order in AD 70. That judgment is coming, Jesus is saying. Now that raises a question though, because if that high priesthood is going to be done away with, who will take their place? And the answer to that is Jesus, our great high priest. If this high priesthood is about to be judged, who's going to step in and be our representative? Hebrews chapter four, and Hebrews goes on at length about this, but just sharing these two verses. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Mark, as he tells the story of Jesus, shows us Jesus doing things that priests do. So for example, in chapter one, we saw Jesus Exorcising a demon and teaching with authority. And people are saying, boy, even the current religious leaders don't teach with this kind of authority. In Mark 2, Jesus forgives sins. Where do you go for forgiveness of sins? You go to the priest. In our passage here, Mark 2, Jesus is showing his priesthood in contrast to the failed priesthood. That's why he's referring to Abiathar. In Mark 3, We're going to see that Jesus gives his authority to his followers, his priestly authority, the disciples. And by the way, the New Testament doesn't just teach that Jesus is the great high priest. It also says that there's a whole priesthood. Who now is the priesthood? But you are a royal priesthood, Scripture tells us. So we're part of what has replaced the priesthood here. And then in Mark chapter 7, we will see Jesus, the priest, pronouncing what is clean and what is unclean, just like a priest does. So Jesus is the priest. He's replacing the failed priesthood, which has rejected him as Messiah. The earthly high priesthood passes away with the temple. By the way, historically, the last high priest in Israel served until AD 70. When that judgment fell, there has never been another high priest in Israel, and there never will be. Hebrews tells us the earthly Jewish high priesthood has served its purpose, and now it's gone, and Jesus is better. What is Jesus's point that he's making in our passage about the Sabbath? Jesus said in verse 28, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If he's the son of man, that means he has authority. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority then to say what is and what is not appropriate on the Sabbath. And Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was appropriate for Ahimelech to give David and his men the bread because the Sabbath is for rest and relief. And all the rules the Pharisees added made the Sabbath a burden, not a blessing. So Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, isn't ignoring the Sabbath rules. He's making his own ruling, his pronouncement, that what they are doing actually is appropriate on the Sabbath. Just like it was appropriate for David, the anointed king, and his band of followers to eat the tabernacle bread on the Sabbath, So, too, it's appropriate for Jesus, the anointed Messiah King, and his band of followers to eat the grain on the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is for rest and relief. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about Sabbath as we apply this today, but let's just look at the other story, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. So follow along with me in Mark 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. All right. Again, we need to see an Old Testament passage to give us the context here, but let me just comment on those verses first. Mark says, again, he entered the synagogue because Mark wants us to think okay, what did you see before when Jesus went into a synagogue? He confronted a demon. The synagogue is the place of opposition. Verse two, it says, they watched Jesus. Who's they? Well, it's got to be referring back to the previous account. It's the Pharisees. So not only are they questioning him, they're following him around and watching him and trying to trap him. They're looking for trouble. To put it in the language of the last scene, they are siding with Doeg the Edomite in opposition to God's anointed. Not only that, but think about this. Think about the irony here. The fact that they are looking for Jesus to perform a miracle on the Sabbath means... They know that Jesus can perform miracles. They're admitting that. They're recognizing there's something special about him. This time though, Jesus sets up the question, on the Sabbath, should we do good or harm? Should we save life or should we kill? And the Pharisees don't answer because either way, their position's gonna be undermined. Their interpretation was that if something wasn't life-threatening, it should be put off until the Sabbath was over. And Jesus' interpretation is different. And Jesus is grieved by their hardness of heart. That phrase indicates a willful lack of understanding. That phrase is actually sometimes used of the disciples themselves. And so Jesus goes ahead and he heals the man, knowing the effect that it's going to provoke. And what's the result? The Pharisees go out and they consult with the Herodians how they might destroy Jesus. That's notable for a couple of reasons. First of all, who are the Herodians? They are the people who are supporters, political supporters of Herod Antipas who rules the region. They are not allies of the Pharisees. But the Pharisees are willing to ally against them in order to destroy Jesus. And so it's almost as if they go tattle to the people who have political power, just like Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul what Ahimelech had done, and what David had done. And it's also important for us to realize, what are they, they they go, I mean, the way Mark tells it, it's right away, they go to the Herodians. So this is still the the Sabbath. And what are they plotting to do? They're plotting to kill. They're plotting on the Sabbath to kill. Which brings out the importance of Jesus' question, what should we do on the Sabbath Should we save life or should we kill? The Pharisees are giving their answer. They're saying, it's lawful for us, Jesus, to plot to kill you on the Sabbath. Well, let's look at the Old Testament background here briefly. 1 Kings chapter 13. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Kings 13. Let me give you the background here. We've already walked through... Saul, David, Solomon. Now, after Solomon comes off the scene, the kingdom is divided. It's the divided kingdom era. And we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The the king of the south is Rehoboam. The king of the north is Jeroboam. The region where Jesus currently is in Mark 3 would have been in the northern part in Israel, where Jeroboam was king. And one of the first things Jeroboam does is he makes golden calves and leads the people to worship them, okay? That's the background when you come to 1 Kings 13. Let's look at the first 10 verses here. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar. Notice the language there. Stretched out his hand. That should sound familiar from Mark 3, what Jesus asks the man to do. Stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him, and his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And now Jeroboam has a change of heart. And the king said to the man of God, "Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself. I'll give you a reward. The man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. This is the only other story in scripture about a withered hand. So in Mark 3, when we come across a withered hand, this is the only other story that can come to your mind if you know your Bible. And notice, it follows right along with the chronology of what we've been seeing in the references to the Old Testament in Mark. Saul, David, Solomon, the son of David, and now Jeroboam. We're just walking through that period of history. Jeroboam was in sin. The warning came to him. His hand was withered. Now, how did he respond? Well, he repented. He asked for healing. He turned back to God. And then he invited the one who brought God's message to join him for a meal. Now, in Jesus' day, in Mark 3, how are the Pharisees responding? The warning has come, and Jesus has told them that judgment will fall. Do they repent? Do they ask for healing and restoration? No. Instead, they complain about Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. Do they turn back to God? No. Do they invite Jesus for a meal? No. They complain about who he eats with, and they instead look for a way to get rid of him. I think you can see in both of these Sabbath stories, we have something that we're learning about the Sabbath and what's appropriate on the Sabbath, but beyond that, Jesus is communicating something about himself and the opposition to him and his kingdom. He's letting people know that judgment will come. This opposition will not stand. Now, in terms of how we apply this in our lives today, I have A couple of things that I want to to point out. One of them, I I just want to point out, practically speaking, when the Pharisees raise this ethical question, where does Jesus turn for an answer? He turns to the word. He says, have you never read? For all the ethical questions that we face today, that should be our reflex action, to turn to the word. What does God's word say? in our community group. We talked about this on Friday. How can we spur unbelievers on to recognize where their own ethical belief system falls short? Well, we need to help them see that the foundation is missing. I believe that's wrong. Do you? By what standard? What standard are you using to measure right and wrong? Is it simply your own preferences? What about when someone else has a different preference? We need a standard from outside ourselves and God has given it to us in his word. So when you have those kinds of conversations with people, follow Jesus' example and turn their attention to the word. I guess the big thing to talk about in terms of how we think about what we've seen this morning for our own lives today is the question about the Sabbath. What's our relation to the Sabbath today? The Sabbath in the Old Testament went from evening Friday through the day Saturday to the evening again. Well, we see the transition in the early church to worshiping now on the first day of the week because that's the resurrection day. So do the Sabbath laws still apply or do the principles that are there still apply to us today? Let me try to kind of lead you to how I've I've thought about this. And um, it's it's not an easy question to answer, I don't think. But if we go to Exodus 20, God's instructions are, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and look at the reason. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. Why? For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here it sounds like the basis of the Sabbath is in creation, not in the nation of Israel. At the very least, we can say God is setting up a pattern for human work, work and rest. Now, on the one hand, the law was given specifically to the nation of Israel but on the other hand, it's found in the middle of the Ten Commandments, and all of the other Ten Commandments, the other nine, all apply to us today. They're universal for all people in all times. However, some of the language in the New Testament seems to run the other direction. Here's what I mean. Romans 14, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day uh, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the Lord, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. So here there seems to be a freedom in regard to how we recognize days. Some would argue this is not talking about the weekly uh, day of worship, the Lord's Day, but it's talking about other festivals Outside of that, but it's hard to know from the context. Galatians 4, now that, you've come back, now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So here it seems like there's a danger in observing days if you don't keep it in proportion. Colossians 2, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Again, there's the question, is this the weekly Sabbath or is this the special Sabbaths that were associated with other festivals? But regardless, there seems to be a responsibility here to act according to conscience in these matters. Now, What's the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, rest and relief, but it's also a picture, and we need to see that. We already looked at Hebrews 4 earlier when we saw Jesus as our high priest, but in the same passage, there's more that we need to see. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews 4. Okay, turn with me to Hebrews 4. In Hebrews 3, if we looked at it, we would see that those who were disobedient in the wilderness, meaning the Israelites, did not enter God's rest, meaning they didn't go into the promised land. We know that story, the generation that had to wander in the wilderness. Now we pick it up in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Okay, so they didn't believe the good news and therefore they didn't enter God's rest. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So we who have believed, Christians, have entered that rest unlike the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. The the promised land was a picture of our eternal rest. We have now received that in Christ. Verse 4, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. So the seventh day of creation was a picture of God's rest from his works, a rest that we are designed to enter. But those who were disobedient did not enter that rest. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So you have a choice. Enter his rest or not. The Israelites in the wilderness made the wrong choice. So how about you? Choose today, the author of Hebrews is saying, to enter that rest. How? By faith. By believing in Christ and what he's done on the cross in place of his people. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So the rest that Israel received under Joshua, rest in the promised land, was not the ultimate rest that was pictured by the Sabbath. Otherwise, he wouldn't have spoken of another day later on, right? It was still pointing forward to another greater rest, the rest that we are given in Christ. Verses 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So we have a Sabbath rest today. Verse 9. What is it? It's the rest that we have in that we have rested from our works. And instead, now, by faith, we rest in Jesus' works on our behalf. So should we celebrate the Sabbath today? Well, the Sabbath was a sign pointing forward to Christ. And other signs like that have faded away. Sacrifices, festivals, they're all done away with once Christ has come. The principles remain, the truth remains, but they're fulfilled in Christ. And so we don't go through the rituals of practicing those things anymore today. So should we treat the Sabbath the same way? On the other hand, it's one of the Ten Commandments, and the rest of them all still apply today. So I wouldn't want to treat it lightly. There are some things that were signs pointing to Christ that get redefined and altered in the new covenant. For example, the Passover meal becomes the Lord's supper. It changes, the content changes and what it represents changes. In the Old Testament, people look forward to what the Passover was foreshadowing. In the New Testament, the Lord's supper looks back to what has been accomplished and completed And so I lean towards seeing the Sabbath in the same way, that the change from Saturday to Sunday is signaling that kind of a change. The principle of rest remains, but the way it's celebrated and the thing represented changes. So we now look back in gratitude for the rest that has been achieved for us in Christ, And so you can celebrate that by ceasing from your work. That is the pattern of how God designed us after all. But it's ultimately a celebration of a heavenly rest that has already been achieved for us. Now, you might choose to obey that by ceasing from all of your other work on Sunday. And if that's what your conscience leads you to do, then that's what you should do. There are a couple of things that I think I'm confident in saying. First, gathering for worship on Sunday should be a priority. Okay, when we say, follow your conscience regarding the Sabbath, that doesn't mean come to church or not. That's not what that's saying. Okay, are there times when someone's work may take them away from Sunday worship? Yes, there are works of necessity. For example, we want paramedics to be ready to work on a Sunday. We want our electricity to stay on and our houses heated and all those kinds of things. But there are a lot of other things that are not necessary that people choose over gathering for worship. Think of it this way. Is what I'm choosing more important than worship? In large part, it's a question of orientation. Is your activity on the Lord's Day oriented around him or around you? What are the givens in your schedule? Janine was just relating to me yesterday, a conversation she was having with someone and they were talking about how they had something planned for this afternoon. And so the wife commented, so we should probably not go to church in the morning so that we're rested for that event. That's backwards. Okay, that's not the way a Christian thinks. What are the givens in your schedule? The author of Hebrews says we should not neglect to meet together, and I think we should take that seriously. It seems our tendency is to err on the opposite side from the Pharisees today. Where they might have been too tight, we tend to be too loose. But honoring the Sabbath rest today also means resting from your works. It means trusting Christ. When I come to God's presence, on what basis can I stand there? Do I think that I've been good enough to earn a hearing? Or do I come resting entirely on what Jesus has done in my place? With that thought, I think it's appropriate that this morning we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what it is. It's a, it's a celebration of what Christ has done for us. This is what gives us rest in the presence of God. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the words that we've read this morning from scripture. This account in the gospel of Mark of Jesus and his, his interactions over the Sabbath. And it takes a lot of work for us today to dig out what's going on there because we don't know your word as well as we should, and um, it's maybe not always a part of the fabric of our thinking, so I pray that you would just help us as we, as we try to remedy that, as we study your word, as we dig in and, and do that, that we would be doing it faithfully and that your spirit would help us to understand. I pray that we would see what Jesus is saying about himself, and I pray that we would recognize that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who actually brings and accomplishes rest in our lives. And this morning, I pray that we would be coming to you not on the basis of what we have done or that we think we've done pretty good this week or we've maintained, you know, a certain level of holiness or we've done a number of good things that we wouldn't normally do or whatever the case may be, none of those things matter. The only way that we can have rest in your presence is by resting on the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And so would you put that finished work in front of our minds and our hearts once again? As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would be able to do that from a place of rest. Knowing that that gift of rest has been granted to us in Christ. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.